Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Thursday, April 14th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. Lots of pitching talk. We got some questions about what to do early in the season with underperforming players, when to make those decisions to move on. I think that's a very difficult question to answer, but an important one, because if you're going to take a chance on someone who's playing well or playing more than you expected, someone has to come off the roster, and it's not always an easy this guy's on the IL, so we can make a move. We're going to talk about Clayton Kershaw looking really good in his first start of the season. We'll look into what Miami might have changed with Jesus Lazardo, who pitched exceptionally well against the Angels earlier this week. Uh, there is obligatory Matt Brash talk on the rundown because people want to know what's going on with Matt Brash. And I think we got a couple other questions. What about Nick Martinez that we'll try to get to today as well? So lots to cover. You know, let's start with Clayton Kershaw and a brush with perfection. Dave Roberts did it again, pulling a starter in a perfect game. But I think he was right, especially in this case, given what Kershaw was dealing with at the end of last season, right? I mean, we talked about him throughout draft season as someone that had significantly elevated injury risk. And if your goal as a team is to keep him healthy and to win as many games as possible and to possibly have him good to go in October, not pushing him for a perfect game in a game that you had a probably 99.8% win probability for at the time that he exited is actually the right call. Yeah, you know, uh, I think so. And I think there was one thing that people are not talking about as much as just, you know, the way Kershaw seemed about it. Right, like mm -hmm. I think it's a little different if he's, you know, kicking Gatorade coolers <laughs> over. You know what I mean? Like he was, he I don't know, maybe it was acting job, but he was seemed super happy. He was, he was, he gave everybody hugs, and you know, I think he was happy mostly because at some points in this off season, it seemed like maybe he was headed towards Tommy John surgery. You know, so I think he was happy to be like, hey, look. I look good. Let's keep it that way, you know? And he said afterwards, the goal is not some sort of personal accolade. The goal is a World Series. So, you know, in in that way, I'm still on track for my goals this year. So I'm paraphrasing there. but uh, And I think that Kershaw managers uh, should be happy uh, that he didn't get because perfect game is not a category in almost any league and if you play with complete games i'm sorry you need to stop doing that right now <laughs> i think there are some points leagues that reward perfect games and i always think a perfect that's game. pretty heavily rewarded already <laughs> yeah, like, <all> right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah complete games are out the door i think that you have to separate a little bit from what's going on in baseball with the third time through the order and pitchers not going as far this was about the fact that kershaw had thrown 11 innings in the spring and had was a major injury risk and you know he was on an 80 pitch count you know you got to 80 how much do you want to push him past this pitch count that he trained to get to you know in the past mm -hmm. when people used to throw 150 innings they used to uh, you know 150 uh, pitches they used to train to throw 150 pitches nobody trains for that anymore they train for 100 and 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 then the, the relievers come in so uh i didn't have a problem with it in terms of what i mean means for kershaw like Sure, you can go and try and trade for him if you want, but you're going to trade at the top of his value. And the whole reason that his value was lower to begin with has not changed. He's still an injury risk. Uh, it's But it's better that he didn't do that than like I remember, I think Corey Kluber is actually last year was in a very similar situation where Corey Kluber was also entering the injury phase of his career. He's an older pitcher. He's very good. He got left in to, to throw the no hitter. 
And what happened later that season? He he lost the second half of the season to a shoulder strain. So, uh, you know, I don't know if he would rather have uh, the shoulder strain or, or the, you know, the perfect game and the shoulder strain or if he would rather have uh, pitched in October that year. Um, but we know, I think I know for sure that Kershaw would rather pitch in October. And I think this is a different conversation if we're talking about a start in August because by that point, Kershaw is going to probably be at his per start max. He's probably not quite there yet. He's, mm-hmm. I think, where he wants to be in terms of what he can do in a start. Obviously, that was on full display on Wednesday as well. But the run-up to the season, we've seen plenty of starters leave early, much earlier than Kershaw did in this outing because of the way spring training was set up and teams want to play it safe and, and for good reason. So just nice to see him pitching really well. 13 strikeouts against the Twins for Clayton Kershaw. And I think you're right. Everything in the profile is the same as it was two months ago. So buying high here doesn't make as much sense as buying high in some other instances where some things have actually maybe changed in a more more substantial kind of way. Let's talk about Jesus Lazardo for a moment. You know, he was lighting up the radar gun. Fastball Velo looked great. It was actually a very good pitching matchup earlier this week between Lazardo and Patrick Sandoval. And I think when we've talked about Lazardo in the past, the thing I've always been intrigued by was it's a deep arsenal for a young lefty, and there's always been pretty good velo on the fastball. Now that he's up, I mean, he was at 97.6 with the four-seamer mm-hmm. in that first start. It's almost almost two ticks over where he was last year. That changes things a bit, but what else was different about what the Marlins had Lazardo doing in his first start of 2022? Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that was different, and I'm hoping it was uh, different in a good way. I do know that Stuff Plus uh, was a fan, uh, you know, gave him 112 when everything last year was below average stuff-wise, even at 95 miles an hour. And I think what's key is not only did he change the velocity on his pitches, but he changed the shape on his pitches. The sinker now has uh, another two inches of uh, horizontal movement. Uh, that it didn't have before. And the four-seamer, it's still not a good, a great four-seamer. Uh, even by Stuff Plus, it was just sort of barely above average. But uh, at least it's going it's going harder, and it, and it has, a, you know, it has a little bit of a different shape itself. So, uh, and then the curveball, um, it, it, uh, it has more drop this year. So, I think that they're, 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 they're tweaking the dials, you know, they're turning them. And I think that the, the you know, I would like to, hmm, I don't know if it's apologize is the right word. I would just like to point to Lazardo as being a very difficult rank going into the season. Because for a long time, I had seen the velocity and um, the potential, what I thought for three pitches uh, that would work. Um, and Stuff Plus had just said the shapes aren't good on these pitches. And for a long time, I, I, I ranked him too high, you know, because look at what he did in Oakland. It was just not that impressive. And so, you know, um, this year coming into it, I was like, well, uh, yet another year with the, the low stuff score. And I'm staring at him, trying to decide where to rank him. And there was that little kind of voice in my head that was like, well, he's going to get a new, vo- he's going to get a new voice. He's going to get a new team. He's going to get a new pitching coach. Like, like maybe this could be the time that he finally turns that raw velo into into something more usable, and I just didn't know 
uh, how to how much credit to give the Marlins organization for player development and pitching coaching. I don't. I, they're a little bit of a black box for me. They used to be a, a, like a poor organization at that, uh, but they have turned out some good pitchers, and uh, I think they've done a good job with Lazardo. So the the question for me is like, do you think I should be somehow baking this into ranks? Should I have some sort of you know, like peak stuff, like expect, like expected stuff or like, I'm trying to say like, you know, I could look at all the changes that have been done to pitchers in the past and be like, okay, one inch of ride is attainable. One, you know, one or two ticks of velo additional is, is attainable. I could look at their past and be like, oh, he's thrown 97 before. Maybe he could sit 97, you know? And I could look at maybe his best curveballs in the past and be like, oh, he's done that curveball before. So he can maybe do that. Um, so I could crump up with some sort of like peak stuff um, and then maybe look at the peak stuff number when a pitcher changes teams. Does that sound like a reasonable process? I'm not sure. I think it would make, I think I would be like, um, I mean, I mean I'd, all, I'd be all over like somebody like Andrew Haney, right? And he had a good first start too, but that's just two <laughs> names, right? <laughs> well, and how many times would you end up chasing a player because of potential stuff and they don't make the adjustments so they try to make the adjustments and they can't right that that those are not not everything that you think is going to work is going to work right applies to hitters too oh maybe if i move my hands i'll 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 do that maybe maybe you won't make contact anymore that can happen too or or even like adjustments yandy diaz right like oh if only he could lift the ball well like one season he did yeah and then he went back to being yandy diaz (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it is difficult to continue having success even with the adjustment because the league can then adjust back. Oh, okay, Jesus Lazardo is doing this now. We're going to change our approach against him, and then can he change his approach again, or is his new approach better than what we can do against him now? I, I think generally, yes. I think it's the right idea. I think trying to get inside the minds of, of teams that are finding players that are undervalued or underperforming for one reason or another, I think that has a lot of value. I just think you're going to have to add a lot of context to when and why you'd want to skew towards taking players that are more driven by potential value-wise than by actual results. I mean, with Lizardo, if we didn't have pitching plus, the best argument I probably could have made for him was that even with his flaws, he was very young for a big league starter. Mm. He was a strikeout per inning guy from basically the day that he showed up in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. And his issues were, you know, control in 2021, the walk rate being up, and homers. And we've seen guys fix those those skills flaws before. That's a very, you know, elementary sort of breakdown of, no, of what he was doing I mean, wrong. That's, and how that's something is. important to think about. It's like, okay, this guy struck out a bunch of guys. You know, like that means still, something, right? Yeah, you, right? You strike out 98 guys in 95 in the third innings in the big leagues. Like that's okay. That's that something's working. Mm-hmm. And sure, the the 661 ERA and the 162 WHIP tell you that plenty of other things aren't. And then you look, and oh, home runs and walks were a problem. Did he always have that problem? Well, no, he actually didn't. He had good good command and control coming through the minor leagues. Why was what was the problem? Was he nibbling? You can start digging in and figuring out. Was it an actual stuff problem? Was it a location strategy problem? Was it both? And then, yeah, you, you could have flags on these players that say, hey, look, if the price is low, and it was. Look, the price for Lizardo this draft season was the lowest it had been, I think, in the last three. 
The price on Andrew Heaney this draft season was the lowest that had been in the last three. I think you'd start to find players that are going late that you should take a chance on. And I think it's also going to steer you right into part of the conversation we're going to have today where how long do you wait to see if these adjustments work? If Jesus Lazardo got hit in his first start, he would have been on the drop line for people in 12-team leagues this weekend, potentially. Instead, he looks more like a buy-high sort of guy. And I just think that's one of the hardest things to figure out is, is this real in, in a good way or a bad way when we're looking at these micro samples for players? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's why we have stuff plus. That's why we look at Velo. That's why we look at Pitch Mix. We try to see, you know, has this person actually changed their underlying talent? Um, in the case of Andrew Haney, it's actually not that clear. His his stuff plus number went down. Um, and 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 for what it's worth, if you look at what he did in that game, uh, it's not like he's never thrown any of those pitches before. You know what I mean? Like it's not like he was like oh because like, there there was there was a story and it was it's a it's a great one by Fabian Ardaya about. Um, about uh you know Haney wanting to throw the sweeper um you know this sort of sideways uh, breaking ball that has some seam shifted wake uh, properties um, maybe he always threw the sweeper if he threw the sweeper yesterday because in terms of uh the primary cur- the primary breaking ball they threw yesterday uh it actually had uh, more drop and less horizontal movement than he had in the past so, but it, it was, uh, it was harder. Um, so he did change something about his curveball, but he didn't really change that much about his fastball. Um, it became a, a little bit more of a sinker and that's it. So do you believe that he's so much better now because he added two inches of drop to his curveball, three miles an hour velocity? When the stuff says he's the same as he's been? See, this is where I I think there are are so many midpoints between start all the time and I don't want this guy on my roster. (laughs) And I think with Heaney, that's more of a slight improvement that I would say, okay, keep using him in matchups that are favorable. Spots at home, cold conditions on the road, favorable matchups on the road. Still be careful with him for now. Let's, Let's see a little more. Lizardo, I feel like, was more extreme in terms of what we saw. I mean, the curveball, I think he threw it 50% of the time in that start. He's never changed thrown curveball that mix, much. Changed the pitch mix, changed the pitch shape, changed the pitch velo. That's, that's a he few more changes. Ch- chicks every box, yeah. So I could see reacting more to what Lizardo did by comparison, even though we're reacting in some way to both of these performances. Like Heaney wouldn't necessarily be the guy that I'm I'm going out and and overpaying to get in a trade. Again, overpaying relative to what people were doing on draft day. Mm-hmm. Lazardo might be. Like if I'm on a, if I'm in a situation and you know I built a few teams like this, some of them I can't make trades, but there's a few teams I built where I really cheaped out on pitching. Well, somebody has some found money with Jesus Lazardo on their roster because he was a late pick. And that person is more likely to give you a pitcher in a trade for a bat if you've got a lot of extra hitting than someone else right now. So they might think they're selling high. It's possible. Mm. They might think they're just getting fair value. And that that works too. But look for the team that has excess pitching. And I would say a lot of times 
the people with Lizardo are those teams right now because expectations were pretty low for him, relatively speaking, back during draft season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree on the Haney thing. Um, I, I think there's an interesting uh, sort of edge case or sort of might sit between these guys as Merrill Kelly. Mm. You know, his stuff plus is up, his velo is up, pitch mix largely the same, shapes largely the same. You know, would you trust Merrill Kelly against the Dodgers? No, but I would trust him more than I did prior to the start of spring. And I think in the case of Merrill Kelly, we saw some of these changes happening in the Cactus League as well. So this is not, this isn't just one regular season start. This is a slightly larger body of work. We've talked a lot about Chase Field not being as hitter friendly as it was four or five years ago, ever since they put the humidor in, it's played closer to a neutral park. So I think those home matchups aren't as scary as they used to be. Uh, I would say, you know, Merrill Kelly, most of his home starts, I would use him. Uh, Road against the Giants, road against the Padres. Those are are fair game. He's certainly not in my lineup at Coors. He's not that kind of pitcher. There's Mm -hmm. very few pitchers that are in my lineup at Coors. But I would say he's more like Heaney of the two. But I think I'm actually, I've moved more on Kelly than I have on Heaney, relatively speaking. I liked Heaney a little bit as an endgame flyer. I previously had no interest in Merrill Kelly. And this spring and what he's doing early on this season has actually changed enough for me where he's he's in that want to use him about two-thirds, three-quarters of the time for most of my lineups. I'm doing a piece uh, that's going up tomorrow with the biggest stuff plus movers. And uh, Merrill Kelly, I believe, is he's in the top 10. I can't uh, tell the way this thing is sorted right now, but I think he's uh, like fourth or fifth in terms of increase in stuff plus. So. Um, one thing that is a little bit frustrating to me, uh, just uh, from an analysis standpoint, is that if you go look at something like Jesus Lazardo's Savant page versus Jesus Lazardo's Brooks page, uh, the change in movements is not the same. Well, that's fun. Yeah, I can't really tell why. I mean, I know that they call his breaking ball a different thing, curve versus slider, I think. Um, but that shouldn't change it because it's not like either of them has him throwing like 50-50 curveballs and sliders and the other one's just saying he throws one. Uh, both of them just say he basically throws one breaking ball. So uh, I don't know what that's about. Maybe I'll get some... Further exploration. Yeah, I get, I'll ask some people some questions. Here's a question for you. Did Matt Brash break <laughs> Stuff Plus with his debut? I know there was also a question about his breaking balls. And I, what I saw, and maybe this is what you saw as well, it looked like to lefties, he was throwing a curveball that was a little slower with more horizontal movement. And to righties, he was throwing one with more vertical movement. It was a harder breaking pitch. Um, and then the TV feed was calling it a knuckle curve. And I think previously it was a slider. So... What the hell is Matt Brash throwing? What should we call it? It certainly looked like two distinct breaking balls to me, even if the little flag on the screen was calling it a knuckle curve every time he threw it. Uh, He did have two different ones, according to uh, StatCast. He had a slider and a knuckle curve. And the slider is interesting. The slider was uh, listed... Um, somebody went on the radio in Seattle and said that their internal stuff plus had Matt Brash's slider at 170 to 190. 
so here's uh, something that can sort of point to uh, possible regression coming in the future or, or how close my model is to theirs because my uh, Stuff Plus model had Matt Brash's slider at 219 Stuff Plus, which is mm. definitely the largest number I've ever seen. Uh, it could be just an early season sample. We do want more like uh, 300 pitches uh, for this model. But, um, you know, and, and I guess... It's a little bit concerning that the uh, stuff plus on the four seam fastball was an 80, despite him throwing it so hard. Um, but, uh, you know, if he can locate it well, uh, and the fact that he just has these two outstanding breaking balls makes me think that, and enough velo, I think that uh, uh, he can pitch past any sort of flaw like that. Um, plus, you know, it's one start so far. Uh, but yeah. In terms of uh, overall starting pitcher stuff, plus Matt Brash is now number one. Um, Spencer Strider is on here because I'm gonna I'm gonna give the minimum 75 pitches, uh, you know, or I could just do starters. But either way, Spencer Strider has the 144. Matt Brash is at 137. Hunter Green at 135. Shohei Otani at 131. And uh, Garrett Cole at 125. Pierce Johnson. Uh, at 125, Corbin Burns at 124. So this is a list that makes sense to me. Dylan Cease at 122, Shane McClanahan at 121. So uh, those are oh, and Chris Mazza at 119. That does not make sense to me. Also, Frankie, it's Frankie Montas. Yeah, and he's at 119. And then after him come Carlos Rodon and Tanner Houck at 118. So still buying Tanner Houck. Uh, that has been your Stuff Plus uh, leaderboard update. I love that you did that like a weather report. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what we want. So Luis Patino goes on the 60-day IL, which is not good news for me because Boy. I've got him as my most rostered player. Mm -hmm. uh, so replacing him is not ideal. The good news about most rostered players, when you think about it, means that they were cheap. Generally, yeah. Uh, for me, the you don't end the up with early the first, player, like the first round pick, you don't end up with the same player every time because you have a different slot. I ended up with a lot of Mookie bets, though. Hmm. Well, he's, maybe you drafted the, guy, the, he's end the of early the first guy. Round. I had a couple end of the first rounds, and I had a couple, you know, open go bid on whoever you want. And oh, right. Got a lot of Mookie bets, but you're right. Uh, part of this is just where Patino goes. 60-day IL, so pretty good immediate clarity that's going to be a while. They're taking the long road to recovery with him. Um, in redraft situations that are mixed leagues, especially, he's an easy drop. AL only, you know, maybe you try to stash him away because innings are innings, and and that's all You know, it's all great. You can get that back later. Maybe he has a good second half. I still believe in the talent, but I mean, one, one inning from Luis Patino this year before he went down. And Painful. Cody, Cody emailed us with a question. He's a lifelong Rays fan, and his question is, is there a way to predict which pitching staffs are more likely to have more injuries? Or is it me just being a homer in a series of bad luck? I'd love to know if I'm hyper-focused on the Rays injury woes or if there's a story to tell about how the Rays handle their pitching. And I know this has come up on the show before, at least in the sense that we know the Rays don't shy away from trading for and, and acquiring pitchers that have scary injury histories. They're not the only team that does this. We talked about the Giants embracing that risk 
throughout this offseason. Clearly, that's built into their model. But I think with the Rays, I mean, Drew Rasmussen is a great example of this. He had two Tommy John surgeries back in college. Usually two Tommy Johns is just the beginning of the end for a player's career. It's amazing that Rasmussen's done what he's done so far and all the best to him. Hopefully he continues to stay healthy. But how much of this is the way the Rays push their pitchers or something within their their organizational structure? And how much of this is just the types of pitchers that they're willing to take chances on? They just don't they don't shy away from drafting injured players or trading for injured players. Pete Fairbanks, uh, the reason that they got him was because he was oft injured. Uh, Nick Anderson had some injury scares before they acquired him. Drew Rasmussen, I think even Fire Eisen had been hurt. Uh, all these guys that they acquire, uh, part of the reason why they can't acquire them is the injury history. And I think for them, uh, the sort of aha moment, the reason why it works as a strategy uh, is especially in light of this new rule that has changed how often you can option someone uh, is the fact that major league teams pretty much have an unlimited IL. (laughs) Like you have, uh, you know, especially when you can move a guy to the 60 in season, what happens is that it opens up a 40-man roster spot. So, you know, long-term injuries are not that scary uh, to an organization in terms of roster manipulation, roster use. Um, And I think the idea in in Tampa, and this is, I think this works if you think about the last few years, the idea in Tampa is let's just have a ton of these guys. (laughs) Let's just have Mm -hmm. a ton of guys that are like often injured. And if we have all these guys, then at least some of them are going to be healthy at any one point. And I mean, I think it's I think it's work for them. Right. And it goes back to uh, the Grant Brisby, Mitch Hedberg, frozen banana joke in some ways where it's like, well, now you've got Patino and he's on the IL, but you get some other injured risk guys. If those guys can just stay healthy through the first half, Patino comes back in the second half and Patino can be used like a regular starter in the second half without any without any overwhelming concerns about his workload. Whereas I still think as much as I liked him this year, there were going to be some some situations in which they might have had to be careful with his overall season workload in order to keep him fresh for a possible playoff run. Uh, So I I do think it's probably more about who they're bringing into the organization and less about something they're doing specifically. But I think this is also part of the, the broader baseball issue of pitchers sitting closer to their max, right? Especially with these relievers that are breaking down those like Fairbanks and, and, uh, Nick Anderson, th- those are hard-throwing relievers. Those guys are max effort sorts of guys. So I-, I don't know if that's unique to the Rays. I think that's more of something we see all over the place right now. Thanks a lot for that question, Cody. All right, you know, let's talk about slow starters. Multiple questions in the email box about that for this week. There are specific examples that we'll get to here as well. But when do you start to worry about slow starters? Questions from Abe and Jerry. They're looking mostly at endgame players, dollar guys in in an auction situation or the last few picks in a draft. Uh, Names that came up in the email, Kevin Smith, who's opening the season in a slump for the A's. Carlos Hernandez, who was a very late pitcher to target, but also not someone that you necessarily have to hold in my opinion so what leads you to make a decision to actually move on from someone that you liked when you're talking about a week or three series worth of games 
I mean, if you did not spend that much on a guy, then I think that you shouldn't be married to that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I just, uh, I think that like, for example, uh, Carlos Hernandez, um, you know, that should have been a decent matchup for him. Uh, and the problem has always been command and he did not show great command. Now, if you're in a 15 team league and you actually paid money for him and you, 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 he wasn't a bench pick, then maybe give him another start. But if you're more in a 12 situation and he was uh, a late flyer, I think you can move on, especially with pitching with hitting, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but I would have to say that, uh, somebody like Kevin Smith's 23% swing strike rate and 50% O swing seems to me like he's really pressing. And of course he's pressing to some, uh, you know, he just got given a, a, a job. And so at some point he'll settle down. But do you want to own him in between? Uh, especially when his projections are, and, and projections are a good way to kind of be like, what's the sober look at this, right? <laughs> like, what's the not the faith casting? The sober look at this is he's going to hit 210 with 14 homers and, and eight steals. That's only worth hanging around for, I think, in uh, AL-only situations. But generally, I like to look at, we talked about this on Last Rates and Barrels, I like to look at things like O-swing, uh, reach rate. I call it reach rate. I guess nobody else does. I should, just calling it a chase rate like everybody else. Chase rate. Chase rate, you know, chase rate, chase rate, and uh, oh, uh, that is which is O swing on Fangraphs, and then uh, hard hit rate. Somebody uh, did something fun uh, for us, uh, a listener. Uh, let me see if I can find this real quick. Uh, put together a, a a little quick list that was uh, hard. What was it? Hard hit rate minus reach rate or minus hmm. chase rate? You know, chase rate. Chase and and uh, uh, Loose Moose Six on Twitter uh, did a, a quick and dirty pop and plate discipline metric hard hit minus O swing. Number one, Wilson Contreras. Number two, Christian Walker. Three, Matt Olson, Mitch Garver, Gavin Lux, Reese Hoskins, Seiya Suzuki, Kyle Tucker, Christian Yelich, and Tommy Pham. So, uh, not not to say that everyone on this is amazing. Uh, but uh, he, as he pointed out, last year uh, the full season results were was definitely a great list. Uh, he said it was definitely a leaderboard you want to be on. And then uh, the week one leaderboard last year included Cedric Mullins, Tyler Naquin, and Ryan McMahon. So maybe a good way to spot an early breakout. I think in this case, um, I the names that I gravitate towards on this list are Christian Walker, who would be maybe widely available in sort of 12 team leagues and maybe even on some 15 team league waiver wires. Um, Gavin Lux as uh, maybe someone to buy high on uh, in a 12 teamer might still be out there. Uh, and then Tommy Pham is somebody to buy low on. Uh, he told me recently that uh, he has changed the uh, prescription on his uh, uh, contacts. And he's got that eye condition. Um, and he told me in the offseason he was hitting 117s, uh, max exit below. So I think it's still in there. I think he's in a really great position uh, to succeed. I know it's a, it's a bad start after a bad year, but uh, I still believe in Tommy Pham. That's when you get those opportunities to actually get a player that can make a difference, though, and it's not going to take that much to make it happen. Um, yeah, I think the, the AL only and the NL only situations are, are tough because – 
in those cases, guys like Hernandez and Smith, it, it doesn't yeah. seem like enough. They still Just have a role. <laughs> the bar for those leagues many times is, does this player play two-thirds of the all. time if they're a position <laughs> yeah. player or yeah, half does the he time? Play two-thirds, yeah. And as a, is this guy a starter? Is this guy a high-leverage reliever? Is he one of those two things? That's usually enough to at least hold. I think in Hernandez's case, if you don't have rules like AL labor where you have to leave him in if you got him in the, the active part of the draft, maybe reserve him. You know, just do that and throw someone else out there for a week and just see what the next turn or two looks like before making that decision to possibly uh, make a move there. There was also a request for me to say that uh, Ohio State is terrible. So I will honor that as a proud oh Wisconsin goodness. graduate. But um, <laughs> I feel like it's just jealousy and, and losing to them constantly uh, in, in football. Like that's 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 where it comes from for me, at least as a, a Wisconsin graduate. We'll get to a few other questions here, though, and we'll talk about slow starts periodically uh, throughout the next few episodes. You know, who who we're worried about, when we should actually make those decisions. We'll keep poking around, trying to offer up some help there. Got a question from Idli on YouTube. Question is, what's going on with Tyler McGill's slider? We saw the the velo was up in the first two starts. He's pitched really well so far, uh, but that pitch in particular was something that Idli was curious about. Now that we've got a little more info on McGill. Yeah, I mean, everyone's focused on the velocity, uh, the velocity, velocity, <laughs> chase rate and velocity. I'm just, I'll get you some I've flash just cards. gone past like mispronouncing people's names just to mispronouncing very common words. Advance. <laughs> so the velocity. That was actually the, the weirdest thing about living in England was. Oh, that couldn't have been good for you innovative <laughs> it's like what are they saying what is that word aluminium yeah and i still say that for some strange reason everyone's focused on the velocity and that makes sense because he was up nearly two ticks and he was hitting some 97s and 98s and that was amazing um but i think the slider thing is just as big a deal he's added four inches of drop to that slider and he did so while throwing it harder. And that's something that people miss when sometimes when they're looking at added movement. Usually added movement costs you in velocity. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about it just in terms of physics. It makes sense because you're turning you're turning energy that could be going towards the plate into movement. Right. And so uh, usually it costs you uh, velocity. And so that's something that people will say is uh, like Jameson Tyon changed some of the shapes on his pitches, but kept the velocity, in fact, increased the velocity on, on some of his breaking pitches, you know? So that's, that's a really cool dual thing to be able to do. So Tyler Maggio added drop and added velo on the breaking pitch. And another thing that uh, is interesting is that his fastball still didn't rate very highly, um, but it rated better. And, uh, a lot of what is driving like his, his increased stuff plus number, which is up there. I think it's a little bit higher than Lazardo's. I would have, I think Miguel a little bit higher than Lazardo. If you were asking for sort of a back end ranking of these kind of emerging guys. Um, but, uh, uh, he's being driven still by his slider and changeup. Like it's a slider and changeup are in the one twenties and the fastball is like one Oh five, even though it's going 95 miles an hour. That's, that's the world we live in. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think that's still great. 
You know, it's still a good combo to get that fastball above average. Now he's got three above average pitches by stuff. Plus, he's always had good command. And now the slider is even better than it was last year. Great question. I think that people are missing how much the slider has improved as maybe being the biggest driver of Miguel's success. Yeah, that is a, a strange thing when you add velo, but you also have more movement because I always think of harder sliders, especially just having that tight late break and, and not the dramatic drop that like you, what you like see. what Gilbert did. Gilbert had a bigger slider last year. Now he has a harder slider that moves less. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So thank you for sharing that. And as always, throw questions under the video on YouTube. We try to sweep through there to, to add those to the rundown. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash rates23. That's linkedin.com slash rates23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash rates23 and get started. I'll get a question about Nick Martinez from Paul. I just wants to know your thoughts about Nick Martinez's first big league start against the Giants. A fastball looked like it was getting hit pretty hard early on, but the secondary stuff looked good. Uh, you know, What did you see and, and what do the metrics say about Martinez? I was able to talk to him and it was a fascinating case because he actually did pitch design on himself, did a course in pitch design, a driveline and did pitch design on himself. So nice. that was, I think, fascinating. We, I think um, I might write about that with uh, Dennis Lynn. But um, so it was a very high level conversation. And so, you know, I was able to talk to him about that, that change up. And he said, you know, I had a bad change up in the past and I just basically engineered for more movement. And so you, he got the movement. And so it really had a good eye test component to it. I think if you watch the start, you saw the Vulcan change, you're like, that's a, a big change up. It's a real fun one. Um, but uh, Stuff Plus, I don't know, it said uh, 93 Stuff Plus. So I don't know if I, I'm kind of like, that's one where the eye test and the stuff don't stuff plus don't match up. So I'm kind of waiting a little bit because it was a 96 on the fastball and that's good enough for a starter. Uh, and, you know, I would say he's more of a matchup starter with a 96 stuff plus fastball and the 93 stuff up stuff uh, change up. But it is a matchup starter that I may want to keep on my bench rather than drop, you know, because I it was a good enough start. And the other thing that uh, that stuck out to me was uh, the cutter, which didn't rate that well. And cutters need horizontal movement. That's if you're looking for something good in a cutter, you want to see horizontal movement. His cutter had vertical movement, but I asked him about that, and he said that it was a weird day for his cutter. So that's something that you know, you know, stuff plus, you know, that's still that's why you need three starts. It's like there there are days where a pitch just moves a little different, you know. And so Nick Martinez said that his, his cutter usually has more of a horizontal uh, aspect to it than it did that day. And so uh, if that is true, then maybe he has he's one of those pitchers that has basically three average pitches by Stuff Plus, which I think 
is a pretty good pitcher. I mean, that's a, that's a pitcher that I want in a lot of matchups. It's not a pitcher I'm throwing against the Dodgers again. Not a pitcher I'm throwing in Coors. Uh, but it is a pitcher I, I would probably throw against the Giants, and he, I think he did okay. And what you saw over the course of the the game, too, is he had some pitchability. If uh, if that's not captured by the model per se, um, he, he was he the fastball was getting hit early, and so then he started using the cutter to steal strikes and the fastball and two strike counts, and he kind of adjusted to what the batters were showing him, and uh, I thought it was a pretty good start. So I'm holding, uh, maybe acquiring in places where I can put him on the bench. Uh, I'm not paying uh, anybody in trade assets to get him right now. Yeah, he's probably in the Merrill Kelly range, just in terms of expected value and, and how you're probably going to use him in most league situations. Um, there is a question about daily decisions that we're going to save for our next episode, because we are going to run short on time. We had some tech issues mid-episode, but one more question I think we can squeeze in before we go is a cut line bidding question. And in the cut line leagues, there are two free agent bidding windows for the entire season. One comes up already next week. The other one, I believe, is in early June. So the question is from Peter. He just wants to know, how much should you spend early? Should you be very aggressive for the likes of Stephen Kwan and Hunter Green and Matt Brash and some of the players that were undrafted that could help you immediately? Or do you try and and balance things out a bit with the spending? Because this is a really unique way that Fab is run in this particular format. I uh, had a similar situation to Cutline where all the free agents uh, went into the pool in AL Labor, and we talked about that on mm-hmm. on this podcast, and I decided to go aggressive and spent 60% of my, 66% of my budget on Anthony Rizzo. Um, and I think this is the same deal. I think you want to be super aggressive because in terms of how much season is left when the second one comes around, there's just not that much season left. What you want to do in the second fab run in a cut line league is add the cherry on top you know what i mean you want to have a championship squad that is ready to go and you add a closer maybe you go hard on a closer maybe you go hard on on uh some very specific need maybe you just cover needs right like you don't you you want to make that championship squad this time so i would say somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of your fab you should spend in this one right and that might be all at your top bid it might not be just that on a few players it's really like going all in on someone like brash i mean i think of those players just seeing where he pops in the model watching that first start i feel like he can do more to help us in the long run i think with kwan it's just an open question as to how much game power there is fun story rooting for the player like the player i think from a fantasy perspective there's still some things that we don't know if he'll do and i think you're gonna have to pay a really steep price to get him on your roster right now I don't. I, the one thing I want to say though is that I think Quan could be a really good uh, cut line. Is is it always best ball? Yeah, yeah. So if it's best ball, Stephen Quan is gonna like just think about the week he just had. Like mm-hmm. he's gonna have weeks like that, and you know there's gonna be some weeks would be really awesome to have like a 700 batting average on your squad. You know what I mean? Um, so I think uh, I think I might I might do the reverse reverse of you where I would go harder on Quan. Or uh, try to get both with like a 500 and a 300, like even, you know, if you have to get that aggressive. Uh, Because I also think that there are some people like there's probably if Tyler Maggio wasn't drafted, Mm -hmm. right? In some of those leagues, Uh, yeah. 
So there's some good down bid numbers that could make it okay to be like, hey, I'm going to throw like a 530 on Quan and uh, like a 230 on Brash. And the reason that makes sense for me is that I also have a 210 on Tyler Medjil and I have like a 200 on Jesus Cesardo, a 201 on Jesus Cesardo. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm, I've got some good down bid pitchers that could help me, but I really... You know, like how many other impact bats are there that I could buy right now? Right. And I think if you only have, you know, 100 or 200 out of your $1,000 budget for that second fab run, that's fine. You're going to spread that out over multiple players. You're going to have some guys that are playing a lot less than you want either because of injuries or performance. So if you got to replace four or five players later, you'll just make really long lists at that long second list. Fab. You'll have the, like the 30 through one yeah. where it's like you have 30 guys that, you know, I just need a middle infielder, just one that'll play. Come on, give me one. Yeah. yeah. So it, I, I think yeah. it does kind of skew more towards like 80% of your budget going out now and the last 20% going out later. But if you want to try and split it and go a little higher to get multiple players, I don't think that's necessarily a bad strategy in a situation like that either. Uh, thanks a lot for that question, Peter. Fun format. I didn't sign up for any cut lines this year. Kind I didn't of a, do any best ball. Yeah, missed opportunity for me. Maybe something we can do uh I was so focused year. on getting ready for the main that I did all these drafting holds, you know? I just, I, I don't know. It was a it was a weird draft season. I think um, hopefully we won't have another one like that for a long time. If, if we're it got going we're so, like if we were like, do we draft now when we don't even know when the season starts? So many players with uncertain status. Oh, the free agents. Yeah, it was a tough one. Yeah. So that, that I think that tur- I just didn't draft that much in February. And then March rolled around and all of the leagues that I usually do all were piled up on top of each other. So I didn't have a lot of extra time to squeeze in more drafts and cut line. Unfortunately, did not make the cut for me, but it is a fun format if you're playing it for the first time. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Before we go, just a reminder, you can get a subscription for $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash Rates and Barrels. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. And as always, you can drop us an email. Rates and Barrels at theathletic.com is the best way to reach us. Or you can leave a comment under this video on YouTube. Just be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to this channel if you haven't done so already. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.